turns and glares at the other girls. Now walk. Suddenly the girls are scrambling across the riverbed. Anya grabs my hand and pulls me along. I am too dazed to resist, so I stumble after her, scarcely seeing the trail ahead of me. It is only a short distance farther. We climb up the opposite bank, wind our way through a stand of trees, and suddenly we are standing on a dirt road. Two vans are parked there waiting for us. Stand in a line, our driver says. Come on, hurry up. We form a line, seven tired girls with dusty clothes. Four men climb out of the vans and they greet our driver in English. They are Americans. A heavyset man walks slowly up the row, eyeing us. He stops in front of me and frowns at my face. What happened to this one? Oh, she talked back, says our driver. It's just a bruise. She's too scrawny anyway. His gaze has already moved on to the other girls. Okay, he says. Let's see what they've got. Our driver looks at us. Take off your clothes, he orders in Russian. We stare back in shock. Until this moment, I have held on to a wisp of hope that the woman in Minsk told us the truth, that she has arranged jobs for us in America. None of us moves. Do you hear me? Our driver says. One of the girls shakes her head and begins to cry. This enrages him. His slap makes her head whip around and she staggers sideways. He hauls her up by the arm, grabs her blouse and rips it open. Screaming, she tries to push him away. The second blow sends her sprawling. For good measure, he walks over and gives her a vicious kick in the ribs. Now, he says, turning to look at the rest of us, who wants to be next? One of the girls quickly fumbles at the buttons of her blouse. Now we are peeling off shirts, unzipping skirts and pants. Everything, our driver orders. Why are you bitches so slow? You'll learn to be quick about it soon enough. The four Americans begin to circle us like wolves, their gazes roving across our bodies. I'll give this one a test drive. One of the girls utters a sob as she is dragged from the line. The other men move in and make their choices. Suddenly, Anya is wrenched away from me. I try to hold on to her, but the driver twists my hand from hers. No one wants you, he says. He shoves me into the van and locks me inside. Through the window, I see it all. Mila! Anya screams. Mila, help me! I pound on the locked door, desperate to reach her. The man has shoved her to the ground and forced apart her thighs. When the man finishes with her, he is streaked with her blood. He zips up his pants and declares loudly, Nice. Very nice. I stare at Anya. At first I think that she must be dead, because she does not move. The man doesn't even glance back at her, but reaches into a backpack for a water bottle. He does not see Anya come back to life. She rises to her feet. She begins to run. Hey! One of the men yells, that one is running. Anya is barefoot, 
naked, and sharp rocks are surely cutting into her feet. But the open desert lies ahead, and she does not falter. The gunshot freezes my blood. Anya pitches forward and sprawls to the ground. But she is not yet conquered. She struggles back to her feet, staggers a few steps like a drunken woman, and then falls to her knees. She's crawling now, every inch a fight. She reaches out as though to grab a helping hand that none of us can see. A second gunshot rings out. This time, when Anya falls, she does not rise again. The van driver tucks the gun in his belt. Too much trouble to run them down, he says. You still have six to choose from. The men begin to barter. When they have finished, they divide us up like livestock, three girls in each van. As we drive away, I look back toward Anya's body. They've not bothered to bury her. Already hungry birds are circling in the sky. In a few weeks, there will be nothing left of her. She will vanish, just as I am about to vanish, into America. Dr. Mora Isles had not smelled fresh air all day. Since seven that morning, she had been inhaling the scent of death, an aroma so familiar to her that she did not recoil as her knife sliced cold skin, as foul odors wafted up from exposed organs. Today, there was an incongruous note of sweetness added to that bouquet of odors, the scent of coconut oil emanating from the skin of Mrs. Gloria Leader, who now lay on the autopsy table. She was fifty years old with broad hips and heavy breasts. Deep tan lines marked the edges of the bathing suit she had been wearing when she was found dead beside her apartment swimming pool. Rum and coke, said the young cop standing at the foot of the table. I think that's what she had in her glass. It was next to her patio chair. This was the first time Mora had seen Officer Buchanan in her morgue. The boy looked way too young to be a cop. They were all starting to look too young. Did you retain the contents of that glass? She asked Officer Buchanan. Uh, no, ma'am. I took a good whiff. She was definitely drinking a rum and coke. At 9 a.m., Moore looked across the table at her assistant, Yoshima. As usual, he was silent, but she saw one dark eyebrow tilt up. Okay, said Mora. Let's take a look at her back. Together, she and Yoshima rolled the corpse onto its side. There's a tattoo here on the hip, noted Mora. Little blue butterfly. She picked up the knife and began to cut. This was her fifth postmortem of the day, and she made swift work of it. She incised skin, gutted the thorax and abdomen, removed dripping organs, and placed them on the cutting board to be sectioned. And finally, when they opened the cranium, the reason for her death, Mora saw it as she lifted the brain in her gloved hands. Subarachnoid hemorrhage, she said, and glanced up at Buchanan. This woman probably had a berry aneurysm a weak spot in one of the arteries at the base of the brain. Hypertension would have exacerbated it. Buchanan swallowed, his gaze focused on the flap of loose skin that had been Gloria Leader's scalp, now peeled forward over the face. So you're saying it's a natural death? He asked softly. Correct. There's nothing more you need to see here. The young man was already stripping off his gown as he retreated from the table. I think I need some fresh air. So do I thought Mora. 
but an hour later she was still in the building, sitting at her desk. She picked up the dictaphone and began to record her report on Gloria Leader. Fifty-year-old white woman found slumped in a patio chair. She is a well-developed, well-nourished woman with no visible trauma. External exam reveals a small tattoo of a butterfly on her... She paused, picturing the tattoo. Was it on the left or the right hip? God, I'm so tired, she thought. I can't remember. She rose from her chair and walked down the deserted hallway. Pushing into the lab, she crossed to the cold room and pulled open the heavy locker door. Wisps of cold mist curled out. Eight gurneys were occupied. Moving down the row, she checked the tags until she found Gloria Leaders. She unzipped the bag, slipped her hands under the corpse's buttocks, and rolled her sideways just far enough to catch a glimpse of the tattoo. It was on the left hip. She closed the bag and was just about to swing the door shut when she froze. Did I just hear something? The fan came on, blowing icy air from the vents. That's all it was, she thought. Again, she turned to leave. Again, she froze. Turning, she stared at the row of body bags. Something moved in here. I'm sure of it. She unzipped the first bag and stared down at a man whose chest had been sutured closed. Already autopsied, definitely dead. She yanked open the next bag and confronted a bruised face, a shattered skull, dead. With shaking hands, she unzipped the third bag and saw the face of a pale young woman with black hair and cyanotic lips. Opening the bag all the way, she exposed a wet blouse. She peeled open the blouse and saw full breasts, a slim waist. The torso was not yet incised by the pathologist's knife. She pressed her fingers to the woman's neck and felt icy skin. Bending close to the lips, she waited for the whisper of her breath, the faintest puff of air against her cheek. The corpse opened its eyes.